You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It's good to be with you again today. Um, The last two sermons I've preached from Galatians chapter 4, but today we're going to go to a completely different place. We're going to talk about why singing matters in the church. And to that, we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians chapter 3. If you want to follow along, I'm going to be reading verses 15 through 17. This is God's word. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is God's holy word. Now, I I think that this is a passage that probably rings familiar to many people if you've been around uh, the Christian church. But I think it's also one of the more misunderstood passages, particularly the beginning of it, where Paul says to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And the reason this is often misunderstood is that people misunderstand what it means to have the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. It is not talking about feelings. Paul is not here saying, may you have peaceful, easy feelings. Now, the reason we may think that that's what he's saying is because when we talk about the heart today, we tend to think of the heart as where our feelings come from. But biblically speaking, your feelings come from your bowels. You feel things deeply in your bowels, not your heart. Your heart, in the Bible's way of speaking, is the place where your decisions come from. It's more the center of who you are. It's what drives you to do the things you do, to think the things you think. And so what Paul is saying here is at the center of your being, may the peace of Christ rule. And what he's talking about is not feelings of peace. What he's talking about is this objective reality, the peace that Christ has wrought between God and man. One of the ways we know that is by looking at the parallel passage in the letter to the Ephesians. The letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians were written by the Apostle Paul virtually at the same time. And there are a lot of parallel passages uh, and it's helpful to look at the different discussions and the way one can often illuminate the other. You see here through this passage, Paul keeps connecting um, being thankful to having the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and peace and unity among one another. Over in Ephesians, he makes this more clear, more explicit, because there he says that God has, from eternity past, planned to bring one new humanity out of the two that were at odds. And there he's talking about the the, the peace that needs to come between God and man, and the peace that God needs to bring between Jew and Gentile, people that hated one another. And Paul says that what God did to bring peace was to send Jesus to live and die in the place of sinners. So this gospel, this good news that he's talking about here is about the peace that Christ has wrought between 
God and man. So what he's saying here, actually he repeats in verse 16, there he says it this way, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Again, the message of Christ is that Christ has wrought peace between God and man. And he says that this gospel, which literally means good news about what Jesus has done, reconciling God and man, reconciling man and man, is to rule at the center of our being. But I want you to notice that the you, every time it shows up in this passage, is not singular, it's plural. So what Paul is saying is, I want the gospel, the good news about what God has done in Christ, to rule at the center of your being, not just for you individually, but for you as a community. Sometimes we use this, uh, this phrase, we talk about wanting our church to be a gospel-driven community. And this is the passage in the Bible that supports such a goal. And how does Paul say that's going to happen? Well, this is where he does something that probably would surprise a lot of people. Because a lot of people would say, okay, if we want to be a gospel-driven community, what do we need to do? Well, we need to learn our theology. We need to memorize Bible passages. We need to pray more. Yes, all those are wonderful things. But very few of us would say that singing is actually important toward that goal. But that's what Paul says here. He says, if you want to be a gospel-driven community, you need to sing. Now, often we think of singing as not really being that important. We think of it sometimes as being about entertainment, maybe being the warm-up to the sermon, which really matters, or even to the Lord's Supper, which really matters. But we don't think of singing as nearly uh, being as important as Paul does. And he says it's vital to sing if we want the word about Christ, the gospel, to dwell in us, notice this word, richly. And you might say, well, why is singing so important for the gospel driving our community in a rich way? And and I think St. Augustine put it well when he said this. He said that he who sings prays twice. And what he meant by that was singing intensifies whatever you're doing. Whether it's praise or lament, singing kind of amps it up a notch. And what Paul wants is not just for the right theology to be in our heads, though that's certainly important. He wants it connect to the center of our being to rule over tradition, over cultural taboos. He wants it to rule at the center of our community, and he wants it to dwell among us richly, which means don't just know it to be able to spit out the answers on a theology exam. He wants it to animate us, to stir us. And that's why singing matters. But I'd say a couple other things about singing. Singing also is embodied. Sometimes we can think of Christianity as just a new idea. But singing helps us remember that we are embodied beings. To to use my friend Jamie Smith's language, we're not just brains on sticks. But sometimes Christians can feel like that's all that matters is what we think. Or in some traditions, what we do is all that matters. And Paul says, no, you need to sing because singing helps you, you be reminded that you're embodied. When you sing, literally sound comes from your your chest and it goes up through your body it comes out and it resonates your your literally your whole body kind of vibrates and resonates in making sound not only that 
But singing is something that is a communal experience. Now we, of course, live in a day and age ever since the invention of the disc man and then the walk man, which was really um, a result of being able to make rare earth magnets so you could have little headphones. But the change that that's brought in our society is that mu music is not generally experienced corporately anymore. It's generally experienced individually. But it's not usually been that for most of the history of the world. Music making and music performing was usually a cultural, communal experience. And that's what Paul expects here. When you sing, not only are you reminded that you're embodied, but you hear people singing next to you. And that's why Paul says that you're admonishing one another, teaching one another. You're not just singing to God, you're singing in a way that encourages one another. There may be somebody sitting next to you that needs to really hear what we just sang. Maybe they're not even at a place where they can sing it. Maybe they look at those words and they're singing and saying, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And then their neighbor is singing in a way that's preaching the good news to them. It's a way that we become a gospel-driven community. You see, it's one thing for the gospel to dwell in us individually. It's another thing for it to dwell in us as a group. But it's, it's what Paul wants is for it to dwell in us richly for it to animate us and drive us. As a friend of mine used to say, we need to hear both the lyrics and the music of the gospel. It's important. Now, there are so many examples of seeing this in the history of the church. One of the things that my work with Indelible Grace um, has, has helped me to, to do is to learn more about the history of singing and the history of hymns uh, in the church. And I will tell you, often... We understand church history to be all about preaching and preachers. Now, I'm a preacher. I think preaching is important. But not to the neglect of telling the full story. And the full story is that singing has really mattered. And so many of the people that we revere and that were greatly used of God, people like Luther and Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, J.C. Ryle, so many of these people spent considerable time and effort working on curating the songs that their people sang. Every one of those people put together hymn books, and most people don't know it. Most people think of them merely as people who wrote theology books and preached sermons. I'll tell you just about Luther in the time that we have. So many people don't know this, but at the Council of Laodicea, which happened in 365 A.D., the church banned congregational singing. Can you imagine coming to church and not singing? Well, maybe some of you, that is how you come to church. Yeah, you know, even in our day and age, we always have the, 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 the I guess, the, uh, the problem of what we call spectator worship, right? Well, in 365 AD, that the church officially said, laymen are forbidden from singing. And for the next thousand years, worship was basically you came and you watched what the priest did. And then you heard the choir of priests sing, but you weren't able to be involved in that. Well, there was a man named John Huss in the early 1400s that began to challenge those ideas. He brought some reforms to the church there in Bavaria, and he also introduced congregational singing. Well, the church didn't like it too much, and they asked him to come answer um, for his crimes at a, a thing called the Council of Constance. The church told him that they would provide him safe passage, 
And so he showed up and then the church said, well, we actually don't need to keep our word to heretics. And they burned him at the stake. They burned him at the stake in 1415 while he was singing a hymn, the Te Deum. And then they issued this statement, the Council of Constance. If laymen are forbidden from preaching, how much more are they forbidden from singing? It's remarkable. Well, Martin Luther, about a century later, gets back to this point of reintroducing singing among the people. It's said that the Reformation began in 1517. We just celebrated 500th anniversary of that, right? Where Luther nails on the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg. But it's been well said that while the Reformation may have started in 1517, it didn't actually take root until 1523. What happened in 1523? Well, that's when the first hymn book was introduced in Wittenberg. There was a Catholic cardinal a century after Luther. Now, I, I wouldn't necessarily take these words as my own words, but it indicates how even Luther's theological opponents regarded the importance of his songs. The cardinal said, Luther damned more souls with his songs than with his preaching. And yet we generally don't think about the songs as being very important. That's not what the people in Luther's day thought. And as a matter of fact, there's been a really interesting book came out a couple years ago that basically shows the places where Lutheranism and the Protestant Reformation took hold and lasted even through persecution were the places where Lutheran hymns took hold. In the places where singing never developed, those places lost the Reformation. So what Paul says here in Colossians 2 has been true throughout the history of the church. And singing is never a secondary matter. I've seen that in my own ministry. You know, I began trying to find old hymns to sing, not just because I was interested in singing old cool hymns, but because my students were really struggling to understand that the Christian life has ups and downs, and that often... Um, what it feels like to be a Christian is it feels like struggle. It feels like sometimes, where are you, God? And if you read the Psalms, of course, you see that all over the place. But my students didn't know the Psalms. They only knew songs that were lying to them about the Christian faith. That were saying, if you really are a Christian, you'll just love Jesus all the time with no kind of doubts ever entering in. And I was like, wait, that's not true. We need to find some better songs to sing. And all I can tell you is at the 20th anniversary of Belmont RUF, we gathered a, a, a meeting and we had former students, alumni come back and give testimonies. And not a single student gave a testimony about a sermon I preached. But every student testified to the songs and the way the songs got into their heart and helped remind them of what is actually true about God and the gospel. Singing really matters. It's never a secondary matter. Worship is formative, like it or not. We are testifying to what the normal Christian life feels like, both for the people that are in here who know Jesus, the, our children who are wanting to understand what does it mean to be a Christian, and for those who are coming from the outside trying to figure out what Christianity is like. Do we sing songs that are true to the full range of Christian experience? It's so important. It's never secondary because worship is formative. It's shaping us. It's molding us like it or not. Thank you. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the gift of music.
Help us to steward it well. We thank you that worship is formative, that we're embodied beings rather than just brains on sticks. And Lord, help us to connect the dots so that our practice matches what the Bible says is true. We thank you for those who went before us, who've given us wonderful songs to sing. And we thank you for this opportunity to gather today. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.